Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Nourish your mind with a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Visit irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. It's October the 25th and you're very welcome to what has become our regular Friday Brexit Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio today, assistant editor and leader writer Ruan McCormick. And I'm pleased to say we're joined again on the line by Helen Thompson, professor of political economy at the University of Cambridge. And some of our readers will also know her from her role in the excellent Talking Politics podcast. We are at a strange moment of calm at this moment in time as we record this early on Friday afternoon with news this morning that the EU has deferred its decision on an extension to Article 50, keeping the United Kingdom inside the European Union until January the 31st. And we could, I suppose, spend our time today wondering what happens next. But rather than do just that, we wanted to have a look at some of the more fundamental and long-term questions, which are probably going to arise pretty soon as a result of this ongoing and seemingly never-ending crisis. Having said all that, though, Helen, I do have to ask you, what is your read and where we are right now in this process and what's likely to happen next week? I wouldn't want to make any predictions about what's likely to happen. I mean, I think that two things are somewhat clearer than they were last week. And the first of them is is that it's possible, I'm not saying it, it's likely, that Macron will refuse, will veto a long extension. And when I say a long extension, I mean one until the 31st of January and propose um, and only accept something shorter. I'm, as I say, I'm not convinced that... He's got to entirely to that point yet, but I think that it is clear that there is a, a growing convergence of interest between him and, and Boris Johnson, um, which I don't think was there a month ago. And I think you can see that in some of the things that um, Macron said about people having underestimated Boris Johnson. I think the second thing that's become almost clearer by the day is in, in domestic politics is how the issue of Corbyn's leadership is playing out in relation to the positions that Labour are taking, not just on Brexit itself, but on on the election, the possibility of an election, which and, and now the Brexit issue, the withdrawal agreement bill and the election seem completely tangled up um, with each um, other. Um, and the fact that that division, um, which was so clear in 2016, after the referendum between the parliamentary party, or the majority, I should say, of the parliamentary party and the Labour leadership seems 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 very much um, open again. Um, and they're clearly, you know, is a not inconsiderable a part of the Parliamentary Labour Party that simply doesn't want to go into an election um, until Jeremy Corbyn is removed from the leadership. Now, I'm not suggesting that they are actively right now to come, come up with ways by which that, that can happen, but their sense that they're not happy with Corbyn's leadership and don't want him as a potential prime minister, uh, I think is is shaping some of the decisions that are coming out of the Labour Party um, at the moment. And perhaps that, that that issue of the future of the Labour Party is actually been as much as anything about what Labour's Brexit difficulties have been about, as opposed to simply being about the Brexit issue itself. I, I suppose, Ruan, that 
uh, the difficulties of the Labour Party are one thing, and I'm sure we all feel very, uh, you know, feel for them at this at this moment of stress. But if 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 that leaves us waiting like, on and on and on, Emmanuel Macron's point, uh, Rouen, will surely become more and more persuasive to other leaders in in the EU that that we can't let this go on forever while you know opposition parties you know fight amongst themselves about how long they're going to keep this barely alive government in in position against its will. I think Macron, his intransigence is partly absolutely genuine and sincere in that he wants the UK to leave. He wants to facilitate um, Johnson, as Helen says. Um, He wants to pursue his own agenda. So he talks constantly in France about his agenda, projecting French influence and power through the European Union. He's bought into that. He's halfway through his term and Brexit dominates every discussion he has in Brussels when he travels there. And so he genuinely wants the UK to leave and he wants to do everything he can to to hasten that. Um, At the same time, I think when push comes to shove, if there are 26 uh, states around the table saying this needs to go as long as uh, January 31st, I think he'll agree because he does not want to be seen as the guy who um, precipitates a no-deal Brexit. I mean, the EU has done everything it can for three years to avoid A, being seen to punish the British and B, bringing them any closer to a no deal. I think if it arrives at that point, he will agree to extend. Most likely this sort of flex tension where you could say um, the UK will leave um, by January 31st, but if they're in a position to leave earlier than that, they can. Um, so I think I think that's what's most likely to happen. Absolutely, if we were at a position where this was being extended again and again and again, these questions would come into play. Um, but I don't think we're at that point yet. I can see Macron saying sometime in the next couple of days, once it's clear from London after Monday or Tuesday what's going to happen there, I can see him saying, well, look, we'll extend, but this is the, the last time we'll do it. But Helen, he will at least have laid down a marker should we find ourselves, you know, a, a similar position looming as, as, as January rolls on. And at that point, I think we probably will see a change of position from various EU leaders, perhaps even from from Leo Varadkar, if the whole idea of an extension is that it's an extension to allow something to happen. So if nothing happens, if the deal isn't passed, or there isn't what they call an electoral event of some sort, at some point you have to move on, don't you? I do. I think that I think this issue can't be deferred for very much longer at all, because what we're seeing, and we've seen this already before this extension of however long it turns out to be, has been agreed, that we're now hearing arguments that basically say, well, we need to rule out the possibility of there being no future trade agreement after the transition. So we've gone from meaning no deal, meaning in some people's eyes, no withdrawal agreement, to it meaning no future trade relationship after the transition comes to an end. And you can't keep having guarantees that these things aren't going to happen which seems to be the position that some MPs at least have got themselves into um, arguing. And I think that in the end, from the EU's point of view, the decisive reality has to be, unless you actually think that there is a realistic possibility of Britain staying in the European Union, you are actually preventing a resolution without saying enough is enough. Because the one thing that would absolutely clarify minds in this, even in this Um, Parliament would be to be faced with a binary choice between no deal and passing this withdrawal agreement. 
Can, can I ask you something else, Helen? I was listening to the, the most recent Talking Politics podcast, which went up uh, a couple of days ago. And at one point, you made a reference to the fact, and it's it's I think you touched on it in a way there, that at some point, these constitutional issues will be replaced by political issues. And one of, one of the ways in which that will happen, of course, is if, as it seems to me is most likely, Britain does leave uh, uh, in, in somewhere or other over the next uh, over the next several months, that that a whole raft of powers obviously will, will be returned to Westminster. But also that point you just made about how the negotiations on the free trade agreement go, those will almost certainly be carried out by a future, uh, will be voted on, I suppose, by a future parliament, which isn't bound in any way by any decision that's made between now and Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there are, you know, if, if people don't want this to happen, if people don't want politics about the future trade relations between um, Britain and the European Union, um, then the only way then that can happen is for, for the United Kingdom to stay in the, in, the, in the European Union because leaving the European Union means that certain questions that have been taken out of contested democratic politics go back into contested democratic politics. And the future trade relationship, assuming the United Kingdom does leave the European Union, is going to be one of those things that will go back into um, democratic politics and I think one of the interesting questions, it's un- that, and it's interesting because it's unclear in what people are saying about, say, you know, trying to amend the withdrawal agreement bill in order to um, keep Britain in the in the customs union. They can't mean actually amending the treaty because that isn't something that Parliament can do. That's between, I think, Stan, the you know United Kingdom government and the and the um, the European um, Union or the draft treaty is um, anyway. So they presumably mean that they're going to do some amending of the political declaration and hope that the European Union um, would accept that. But you can't actually bind, this parliament can't bind what a future parliament, as you said, or future executive is going to do in terms of those negotiations. Because what happens if a, if a party comes wins the next general election that wants to do something completely different in regard to the customs union? So I think that this sort of it, it, it's, it's like that there's a, a failure to see that leaving the European Union has consequences, or you might say, as a counter-argument to that, there is such resistance to accepting that leaving the European Union has these consequences that um, people are willing to sort of leave Britain in this kind of strange impasse of in and out simultaneously almost, um, because they don't want to accept what the new politics will entail. This is the point at which Irish people can fall into a the danger of falling into a pit of smugness, and they look at uh, Bunrock Nehera and the Irish Constitution, which is not you know a university loved document in in all its facets, but it does provide a framework um, and a rule book of sorts for addressing these sorts of questions if and when they should ar- arise in Ireland. And it it strikes me, you know, looking at some of the the elements in the British political landscape over the last several years, the Fixed Term Parliament Act, which seems to have been a complete disaster, a bomb thrown into the current constitutional order and which is operating in ways which were not predicted by the people who who put it together, which was really a, a coalition deal by a government. And then you have this bizarre situation where one of the things presenting the, the Johnson government from introducing a, a one-line bill for an election is that it would be open to Parliament to completely change the laws governing uh, who is franchised and who isn't franchised to vote in that election, allowing 16-year-olds to vote, allowing 3 million um, uh, non-citizens to e 
EU non-citizens to vote. Now, those ideas may be all well and good, but again, and here's the smug bit, in Ireland they'd have to uh, be passed by uh, by a referendum amending the constitution or in other countries you'd have to have a super majority in parliament and none of those things are there. I mean, I think that this idea that um, voting for votes for 16-year-olds could be introduced in a motion like this is absolutely constitutionally staggering. I think people have, have lost, you know, you know, really, really I mean, I was going to say lost the plot, but in some sense, we've all, where the Constitution's concerned, I think lost the plot in Britain some time ago. But this would be taking it to a, a whole lot. This would be taking it to a whole other um, level. And, and as you say, that's nothing to do with the merits or the demerits of giving the vote to um, 16-year-olds. I actually do think that in terms of practice, that there was a reasonable understanding of how the Constitution was supposed to work that lasted for quite some time. And that was if you were going to have this kind of constitutional change, then there either had to be a general election in which a government had got you know, this proposed constitutional change in the manifesto, or in some instances there would have to be um, a referendum, like there was, say, over Scottish and Welsh um, devolution, and actually in those instances they'd been in the manifesto of the Labour Party as well. It's, it would seem, though, that as we've sort of gone further and further into the Brexit political um, crisis, that the sense in which people are bound by the... Um, conventions, if you like, of the, the constitution, the way things that are supposed to work, the, the, the constraints have simply been have simply been thrown out of the window. And, and clearly, you know, you can't have a constitution of the kind that the British constitution is on that on that basis. It, the whole premise of it is is that it requires the, those with the executive power and those in parliament to exercise some self restraint. I, I'd just like to ask Ruan about that because Ruan, you know a bit about you know the Irish constitution. Should we be sending over our constitutional experts when, when all this is over to offer a bit of <laughs> friendly, neighbourly advice? I don't know how, how well that would go down. Um, I mean, I, it's important not to be too smug here in that, you know, absolutely, Bonnroch the Heron regulates a lot of this stuff much better in a much more, more orderly way, right? But I would hate to see, for example, how the next... Uh, Irish referendum on an EU treaty will be played out in, in a world of fake news and foreign interference in, in uh, referenda and so on. I mean, the Brexit referendum or a, an exit referendum, had it happened in Ireland, would have been very would have looked very different in that because of the constitution, there would have been a requirement on the government to publish bills in advance to give a much better sense of what withdrawal actually meant and what it would look like and what the next steps would be and all the sort of things that the Cameron government didn't do before that referendum in 2016. There is also obviously that connection between the people and the constitution. So, of course, Britain has a constitution. It's not necessarily written down in the same place, but it's there in a series of traditions and conventions and protocols and legal documents. But it doesn't have that connection between the people and, and the document itself. It, you know, the, the, the guardians or the custodians are largely uh, in, in parliament. Um, but uh, it seems to me that you know, while the British, the argument for the British unwritten constitution was always that it, it succeeded in marrying, you know, stability on one hand and flexibility on the other. So you had this sort of solid foundation. At the same time, you had the flexibility you needed to hold this multinational state together. And that worked very well in a certain sort of environment. Um, the historian Peter Hennessy once referred to the good chap theory of government. In other words, where you had 
you know, a ruling elite who generally agreed on where the parameters lay, where the boundaries lay and agreed to remain within those boundaries. You also had a population that was willing to hand over that prerogative to the politicians. All of that is starting to fray or has been fraying for a long time. It's been fraying since before Brexit, you know, where the two-party duopoly is starting to fall away. Um, Trust in politicians has been eroding. So there's all these pressures. There's the secessionist movement in Scotland. There's the possibility, I wouldn't put any higher than that, of a United Ireland sometime in the next 50 or 70 years. You know, all these things, devolution in Scotland and Wales, all these things are putting pressure on it. And those pressures have come to the surface uh, in the last couple of years. Um, So certainly, you know, the argument is being made and it's being made in places you wouldn't necessarily have expected it to be made over the viability, the long-term future, the unwritten constitution. Um, But as I say, I I would not be overly smug about one of the no, no, it's, it's ability to withstand as, these things. As we well know, there, we, uh, we've had problems with it. But I wonder, Helen, just returning to that point about there being more politics returning to the UK because of return sovereignty, obviously, um, from Brussels. I'm, I'm wondering what that looks like. I know for smaller countries that are in the EU, for example, for Ireland, uh, there's a general feeling, certainly on the centre, centre-left, what might be called the progressive part of politics, that the EU has been a force for good in a lot of areas when it comes to things like social protections and workers' rights and access to various other kinds of rights as well. And that has been one of the arguments made by Remainers, without success, I suppose, over the over the last few years. But it seems to be more pushback against it in the UK, even on the left. I almost get a sense when I hear trade unionists or members of the Labour Party speaking, they kind of say, we would have won those rights for, our, for ourselves anyway, and we'll continue to fight successfully for them into the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's clearly a, a minority left-wing argument that argues in the way in which you've um, just described. I think, in some sense, the most significant thing about the Labour Party as a whole's relationship to the European Union since the late 1980s was that the the counter-argument that the EU was, in some sense, a, a bulwark uh, against a, a then-Conservative government and any future Conservative um, governments that would want to um, diminish workers' rights. And, some, and, and later that became an argument about, I think, about environmental protection as well. In many ways, that became the fundamental attraction, I think, about European Union membership for a Labour Party that had, until that point, the late 1980s, been a predominantly Eurosceptic um, party and hostile to European community membership as it then um, was. So in that sense, I think that you know Brexit is in part... A, um, a crisis, I think, for the for the Labour Party in this sense that something that they had relied on as being uh, a defence against Conservative governments is now being taken away or could well be taken away given that the question isn't um, resolved yet. And so they, they kind of want to find some alternative that will still do the same political work, if you like, that EU membership did um, since the, the late 1980s. But the truth is, is that there isn't anything that's going to work in the same way once you leave the European Union. They are going to have to win those arguments in democratic um, politics um, itself. But I think it does explain some of the pretty considerable reluctance in parts of the Labour Party to give up on European um, Union membership. I think the difficulty it causes them, though, is is that that in itself isn't a basis for sustainable um, membership for the United Kingdom of the European Union, because obviously there's a lot more to the European Union than just um, this um, question. And you can't simply treat the European Union as a um, a domestic, sorry, as a means to a domestic 
political end. It's an entire legal and constitutional order. Now, even when Britain's got opt-outs, of, had the opt-outs that it's had of certain things, obviously probably most consequentially um, of the euro, European Union membership does actually make some demands. And I don't think that um, these are um, things in terms of how those demands are sustainable in British politics that the Labour Party has necessarily thought through. Because when when the UK went into the European Union, it was a very different country. Um, among other things, I think it's fair, it's fair to say the trade unions were much more powerful. The economic and industrial base upon which the United Kingdom was based was very different. Uh, coming out now, uh, a half a century later, the unions are actually a lot weaker. The structure of the economy is very different. If Take, for example, something like the debate which is bound to be had now over the next few years about uh, the United Kingdom's role, economic role in the world, its trading partnerships with other countries, uh, how to be competitive uh, against those other countries. Uh, how are those going to play out politically, do you think, for Labour and for the Conservatives? Do you think, do you think that they'll cause a shift in the sort of the the party politics which we're used to seeing in the UK over the last couple of decades? I think that that's hard to tell at the moment because one of the things that's obviously true is is that we haven't really had trade politics since we've been in the in the European um, Union because trade has been a you know a prerogative if that's the right um, word of the of the European Union itself it's the, it's a clear it's an area where clearly that's where authority lies at the EU level and not at the um, national level. Uh, and it's true that in the past, obviously, particularly uh, in the second half of the or the middle of the 19th century, and then again in the 1920s and the 1930s, that trade politics was a very divisive issue in in British politics. Uh, you know, it, it broke the Conservative Party in 1846 over the Corn Laws. It caused a great more deal of division um, for the Conservative Party in the first third or so of the uh, 20th. Um, century, there then became the question of like having constructed an imperial trade block in the 1930s. What happened when the Americans insisted that the imperial trade block had 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 to go? So, if you're looking at it from a historical perspective, you would say that you might expect there to be um, a rerun of some quite bitterly contested politics about trade. Having said that, as you've just said, is you know, the present British economy and the present world economy are not like what they were either in the 19th century or the first three decades of the uh, 20th century. And uh, there's some pretty big questions, I think, for everybody, including the EU um, and obviously the United States, about how um, the issue of trade with China in the for everybody, uh, not just trade with China, but the whole economic relationship um, with China, and the relationship of the economic relationship to the security issues around China is is going to play out, and I think you know like that is going to that is going to raise some really quite um, difficult substantive questions for a post Brexit um, Britain. At the same time, um, as we might expect that there won't be a great deal of domestic political consensus about how to deal with those questions. Yeah, Ruan, let me put that to you um, because you've written uh, rather scornfully, I think it's fair to say, about this whole idea of a of a global Britain, uh, Singapore on the Thames, all that stuff uh, that, that people in Ireland tend to be very derisive, derisive about. Um, there's, it, it is one of the 
underlying ideologies which is driving Brexit, not the only one, but it is one. Um, I suppose one of the points about it is that alongside other elements which are driving Brexit, they're kind of, they're contradictory because there are other, there's also, I suppose, nativist and protectionist elements at the same time within Brexit. I mean, that's right. I, I mean, I wouldn't be scornful if I thought they were serious about it and if I thought the voters were behind them on it. I mean, I think, you know, the Brexiteers were very good at um, at coming up with really effective, um, you know, resonant slogans and branding. And, and I think Global Britain uh, was, for their purposes, a piece of really effective uh, branding and the sort of branding that the Remainers were really poor at coming up with. The reason it's paradoxical or contradictory is that if you look at the Brexiteer heartlands, you know, so, so the people who would buy into this global Britain idea tend to be younger, tend to be urban, um, tend to be well-travelled. The Brexiteer heartlands research has shown around the time of the referendum and since that people tend to be weary, you know, uh, sceptical of immigration, hostile towards globalisation, you know, uncomfortable with a lot of the things that would be required of Britain to make this idea a reality. Um, you know, and these contradictions were embodied in Theresa May, you know, who on one hand was talking about, was was framing Brexit as an opening up, as a as an opening up to the world, as an extension of, of Britain's place in the world. And at the same time was saying, if you call yourself, um, you know, what was that line? She said, if you're a citizen of, of, uh, of the, the world, world, you're a citizen, a citizen of nowhere, nowhere right? Mm. Um, and, and so there's a natural, a natural tension there. And so that's why I, I'm sceptical uh, of the idea. It's problematic as well when you look at the countries that the UK is talking about. So it looks at the US and says we're going to develop a really great relationship with the US. We're going to strike a free trade deal. The world has changed a lot since 2016. The world has changed a lot since the time of the referendum campaign. The US of Donald Trump is a pretty, you know, untrustworthy partner as Kurds and other others have found in the last couple of weeks and months. Um, you know, if you look at the idea of the Anglosphere, you look at the countries that um, that Brexiteers talk about developing relationships with. Um, you know, the rich white bits of the Commonwealth to re reduce it to that. Um, these countries aren't all that big. They tend to be quite far away. We know that countries trade most with countries who are near them, um, which is why the European Union worked so well. I mean, I think just think the idea of this global Britain, this extension of relationships with the, the Anglosphere, I think it's problematic. I think that it's inbuilt with tensions, and I'm not sure that the people who voted for Brexit were voting for that. Uh, Helen, if Ruan is right, that means that that kind of dream has got to come crashing into a brick wall of reality quite quickly after Brexit itself actually happens. But is he right? In part, I think, yeah, I mean, there's clearly a, um, you know, there is a profound tension between the different parts of the Leave coalition as it was constructed um, to win the to win the referendum. And I think, you know, it's quite striking that Dominic Cummings was very keen on shutting down the whole global Britain argument, um, didn't want that as a as a slogan because he knew it wasn't the way to um, win the um, win the referendum. That's why he was so keen on making arguments um, tying you know, EU membership to the National Health Service because he wanted the, the referendum framed in a more um, domestic um, way um, than that. I think the, the question in terms of trade in the future is, is whether the um, a package, if you like, of economic policies can be put together that is... Um, relatively free trade orientated um, on the external side, but backed by 
significantly more domestic intervention than we've seen from perhaps previous um, Conservative governments, whether that can be the way of um, squaring the circle, so to speak. And we, I think we already have seen that, that, that Johnson, um, if the Conservatives were to, in the end, win a, a parliamentary majority at, at an election, is going to, would lead a government or will lead a government that will spend a lot of money. Uh, I mean, the, the whole austerity um, narrative and the need for it has, has already been um, dropped. I think we'll see you know, significant infrastructure um, spending and an attempt, I think, to try to combine a more domestically interventionist economic policy with a more free trade orientated external economic policy. Can I ask you on another matter, Ruan mentioned this briefly earlier, but the other element, of course, of this is the position uh, particularly of Scotland and Northern Ireland as this all plays out over the next few years. I was talking to a colleague who who talked about how fundamentally this changes the way in which, um, uh, I suppose, devolution, first of all, and then moves towards independence, particularly in Scotland, have played out over the last 10 or 20 years. He talked about a concept of nested sovereignty, which, as I understand it, essentially means that within the warm embrace of the European Union, it was possible for uh, subdivisions of national territories to pursue greater autonomy within those territories, or even perhaps to have a debate amongst themselves about independence between the European Union, which is a much less frightening prospect than just setting sail away with uh, hard borders and all the rest of it. Now, that nested sovereignty, certainly for Scotland, is kind of blown away, isn't it? Um, Should Britain leave the European Union? And that changes the terms of the debate in a very profound way. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, you know, I've long been of the view that in the medium to long term, and I stress in the medium to long term, not the short term, that actually um, the United Kingdom leaving the European Union will strengthen the union between England and Wales and Scotland. I'm leaving the Northern Irish question out of it because I think that is something different because the whole basis of Scottish independence has rested, the claim, the bid for Scottish independence in a practical sense has rested on ongoing European Union membership. And I think we already saw that the the difficulties over the currency question really played a quite significant part uh, in the defeat of the the Yes campaign back in um, 2014. And that was a simple, not a simple matter because there was nothing simple about the currency um, issue, but that was the currency issue without the whole which market do you, single market do you um, wish to be in, you know, and the possibility then of a hard border between Scotland and um, England. So although I think that the the means by which um, Britain leaving the European Union would have come about and the near bitter unpopularity of Boris Johnson in Scotland would fuel short-term arguments for Scottish independence, I think that it actually makes Brexit actually makes Scottish independence less practically viable, significantly less practically viable in the end. Yeah, Ruan, somebody did say to me that they saw one of the things about Brexit was, and not in the sense we normally in Ireland think about it, but more broadly, a unionist project. I was speaking to um, some Irish officials this week, and like you, they're very much of the view that the Remain argument has now lost, um, and that you know Brexit is going to happen sometime over the next couple of months, um, and that the, the, the withdrawal agreement that Boris struck and succeeded in bringing through the first stage of in the House of Commons will be the basis for whatever deal um, ends up um, uh, ends up being passed. Um, so their 
moving very much. I mean, of course, they're involved in the discussions over extensions and so on, but um, they're very much preoccupied now with what happens in Northern Ireland. And one person I spoke to said, if you look at all the relationships defined under the Belfast Agreement, so, you know, inter-community relations in the North, the North-South relationship, the East-West relations, all are probably in their worse than at any point since the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. And so, you know, in a whole range of areas, Brexit is a uh, a generation-defining event. We're going to be talking about it in five, maybe ten years' time as a current live story, right? But I think that's especially true in Northern Ireland. There's no doubt about it. I think it's going to set the terms in the same way that the Good Friday Agreement itself um, you know, defined the discussion that we're having now about the North in the same way that the Iraq War in 2003 defined a lot of the trends that are still playing out in British politics. I think the Brexit vote is going to define a lot of what happens in Northern Ireland over the next 5, 10, up to 15, maybe maybe longer years. Um, and the key question now, presuming that this withdrawal agreement is passed in some form, uh, and you do have checks between East and West, between uh, Britain and Northern Ireland, you're going to have... The DUP is the largest party of unionism in the north, feeling disillusioned, betrayed, disappointed, you know, choose your word. And that's going to affect or infect everything that goes on. So it's going to make it much more difficult to reestablish the institutions. It's going to make it much more difficult to run Northern Ireland. It's going to make it much more difficult to run the um, structure set up under the, the, um, the, the, the agreement itself. And, you know, so officials were saying to me this week, you know, we wish the British government could come up with a more reassuring way of explaining what the document entails as regards um, um, checks uh, between checks in the Irish Sea, that it's all now about communication. Now, you can you can have your pick as to who's to blame for this. You can blame the DUP for not preparing its party and its constituency better, for not reading the three the red lines that Theresa May set down early after the referendum and saying this was the logical conclusion of that. You can blame the Irish government for not being more attentive to unionist concerns. You can blame the Brexiteers for abandoning, abandoning them and not having stuck with uh, um, Theresa May's agreement for a whole UK customs union, right? Or, a, sorry, a whole a UK backstop. Um, but, you know, we find ourselves in this situation now where things are in quite a you know difficult situation. And I think that is going to define what goes on in Northern Ireland over the next couple of years. So I think that you're going to see that there'll be a huge effort over the next months to reassure unionism, to, to try to minimise those checks as much as possible. Um, and you're probably going to see a push to re-establish the institutions because there's a sense, at least among some of the people I spoke to this week, is that the longer that we, we continue from this point on without the re-establishment of the institutions, the harder it will become to ever re-establish them. I mean, Helen, there's been a lot of focus on everything that, that, that Ruan is talking about there. And indeed, it is quite a worrying landscape. But I'm worried as well, uh, there was a report issued yesterday, I'm not sure if you saw it, which was on people's attitudes on the on the, on the the issue of, of remain and leave. And I mean, fairly shockingly, it suggested that quite a high proportion of people wouldn't mind seeing violence against MPs, against elected representatives, if it achieved whatever their desired political objective might be, be it remain or leave. Now, I'm not sure how how robust that is, but I mean, it does in a way point to the really, the word toxic is overused, but in this case, it's appropriate, the toxic political atmosphere in the United Kingdom at the moment. Is there is there any prospect of of that sort of level of bile being, being reducing 
um, once once we move on to the next phase of this? Uh, I mean, obviously, I would like to, to hope that that there is. I mean, I think that clearly a lot of, you know, like very bitter passions have been stirred up over the last few years by Brexit. I mean, the, the caveats I would put to that is that I still think that there's you know, a lot of people who would actually like politics to go back to being about issues other than Brexit. It's not like that there aren't many other things that um, people have, um, you know, a, a great deal of worries about and want, you know, the health service to be better, want, you know, public transport to be better, want the climate issue addressed um, more um, forcefully. So there's plenty of other things, if you like, that politics can be about. And I think that sometimes, particularly for people like us who spend so much time talking about Brexit, we can think that everybody kind of spends as much time going on about Brexit as we do. And I don't think that's actually... I don't think that's actually the case. I think that it is also true that Brexit in some ways is serving as a as a proxy for you know other issues. I do think, as I say, on the Labour, in the Labour Party, for example, it's becoming clearer that part of what has been going on is actually a struggle about that older struggle between the majority of the parliamentary party and Corbyn's um, leadership. So that actually, once if you like the Brexit episode of that saga's um, played out, then it moves away from Brexit and into something in, in, into something else. Having said all that, there is still a fundamental political problem that the United Kingdom faces, and I think it faces it in multiple forms because it's not quite the same in all of England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, is, is that the people who end up on the losing side in the end of what happens with Brexit have got to politically reconcile themselves to it. And, it, and it's not easy really right now that easy to see how that is going to happen. Helen, Ruan, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. And that's it for today. Thanks to Helen and Ruan again. Thanks to our producer, Declan. And remember that you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Acast, or whatever the hell your preferred podcast provider might be. And remember that you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. Your views are always very welcome. I read them with great interest and I try and respond when possible. Uh, you can mail me at hlinnon at irishtimes.com or even more easily, you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. It's time to focus on what matters. Nourish your mind with Headspace and the Irish Times. Headspace connects you to yourself. The Irish Times connects you to the truth. Headspace gives you a healthy perspective. The Irish Times gives you a wider perspective. Take a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Pause. Breathe. Focus. Subscribe at irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply.